Welcome to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast, the podcast all about the delicate balance between people and business, and quite literally, reconnecting the two. My name is Tracy Rubin, and I've spent nearly my entire professional career in HR. Join me as I share stories, opinions, and words of advice with you each week. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening or watching this episode and share it with a friend, too. This week, I have Daniel Tolson on. He is going to share a perspective on emotional intelligence that we've not yet heard on this podcast. So if you think this is another episode on emotional intelligence and the same thing we've been talking about week after week, it is not. It is completely different. So let me tell you a little bit about Daniel before we jump into the episode. Daniel Tolson is a successful business coach and is regarded as Asia's number one business coach specializing in emotional intelligence. He's helped many celebrities, self-made millionaires, and billion-dollar businesses to unleash new income levels. Daniel is also a former Australian champion wakeboarder, and he shares a story on this as well, so I think you're going to enjoy that. Daniel's inspiring journey actually began as a child from having a linear sequential learning disability to becoming a consultant to self-made multimillionaires. Disability did not stop him from carving his way to his success. His experiences in life brought about a series of career highs, such as co-leading 17,000-plus cabin crews for Emirates Airlines, launching his own clothing brand, and building a global business that impacts more than 15,000 business people to accelerate and multiply their lives. Daniel's accomplishments are proof that there is no limit to what one can achieve and that it all starts with the right state of mind and a definite purpose. So without further ado, I will introduce Daniel and we will get started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I know you are in a totally different place than I am. So why don't you why don't you tell us where you are and who you are? Well, I'm from the beautiful place in the world called Taiwan, and we say we are the heart of Asia. So here in Taiwan, they call me an egg. I'm uh, white on the outside and yellow on the inside. I love that. <laughs> so, uh, beautiful island, and we're about 95% Buddhist. So for me, it's a very spiritual place. And mm. around my home here, there's a lot of uh, local gods, and we call them Tutigong which means the old guardian of the land. So a very spiritual place. Wow, so that's I where that. I reside. And um, how did I get here? Well, I got here because I met a beautiful Taiwanese woman. And uh, that was back in 2009. And we were colleagues. We worked together. And then uh, we had the same passions. And then uh, my wife, after she fell pregnant and uh, she was involved in an aircraft accident, she decided that she would come back to Taiwan. And then I had to choose do I keep working in my career, co-leading a team of 17,000 people, or do I choose family? And so if you want to uh, know a little bit about me, it's uh, family first. Family is really important, and I walked away from a very good career to make sure that I could be with my wife for the birth of our daughter, and I've been here ever since. So uh, Taiwan's my home. Oh, I love that. I love a, I love a love story. And I know the listeners are going to really love your story too. And, you know, I, I can totally resonate with the family, family first motto, that family over everything. I love that. Well, Amazing. I, I even build my career the same way. I, I love to wake up with my children in the morning. I love to take my daughter to school. I love to pick her up from school. Yeah. And uh, tonight my wife said, you know, husband, 
uh, our daughter's almost 10 and um, the four of us are sleeping in the same bed tonight. And I said, I couldn't think of anything better. Oh, <laughs> said, that's... You, know, you only get these little moments yeah. and they don't last for long. So if my yeah. daughter's going to be 10 soon, um, she's going to soon change her mind. But if I can just have these family cuddles for a little bit longer, yeah. that's what I want. But I also know it leads to high levels of emotional intelligence. So I do have a hidden agenda. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like, oh, <laughs> this all comes to, to fruition in my content. Thank you so much for this. <laughs> I love that. Actually, it's it really what you're saying here makes me, you know, on a serious note, think about how, you know, careers have, and, and the, the workplace and just the, the frontier of work and careers have changed so much and that you can do both. And and actually, it's super commendable when people do both because it's a lot of work. But um, hopefully gone are the days where you have to pick and choose between a career and family when when you finally like get settled in the place where you settle you know so I I love that I think I think everyone's just kind of looking for life to mean a little bit more than just work you know it's not kids you can bring your cat to bed it's okay yeah yeah or your dog (laughs) you know honestly you can bring anything or anyone you want to bed we're not going to ask too many questions (laughs) on that note maybe we should jump into the reason why you're on the podcast here Um, And I'm really excited. I told you before we started recording that uh, I've had a few conversations about emotional intelligence on the podcast. And one of the things that I really, really work hard to do is to give the listeners varying perspectives and different ideas because we're not always going to agree and we're not all going to have the same perspective, which is the beauty of thought leadership, in my opinion. It's why you want to surround yourself with people who think differently from you and are different from you. So you have a very interesting perspective on emotional intelligence and a perspective that's actually really opened my eyes. So why don't we start with your definition of emotional intelligence, what it is, and what we really need to know before we get started. When I grew up, I grew up with entrepreneurs. So I didn't come from academic families. The first person in our family to have a degree was my brother's wife and then my wife. So I grew up around very practical people. My mum was a hairdresser. My father was a farmer. So they were very simple people. However, simple doesn't mean simple. Simple can also be very complex, but the way they do things is simple. So emotional intelligence when I grew up was the ability to be street smart. Now, my father, uh, albeit not educated, would have been making more money than a lot of educated people. However, what he had the ability to do was to deliver on his promise. And so if he did business and made a promise, he'd always deliver on the promise. And that meant he got continual repeat business from people who he was working with. My mother, as a hairdresser, what you had to learn to do, you had to learn to listen to others. And when somebody comes in and gets a haircut, the most interesting person is not the hairdresser. It's the person in the seat. And hairdressers know all of the secrets. Hairdresser knows everybody who's having an affair. They can also keep it a secret. (laughs) So in emotional intelligence back then, was just being street smart. It was knowing your strengths and promising. It was knowing your limitations and not over-promising. And it also was about getting along with other people. And if you could do that, then you could be successful. So for me still, emotional intelligence is being street smart. I love that. I love that. So interesting. When you think about someone who 
is successfully uh, academically smart, let's say, um, and they've you know proven themselves in the academic setting, do you think they can also be street smart, or do you think it's more of like a you know sixty forty type of thing where you only have a hundred percent of one bucket and you have to kind of share both? Well, I think probably business has proven this. You can go and get a degree, you can do a doctorate and come out of university after seven years. And the first thing they ask you is, how much experience do you have? Hmm. And that's a conflict to a lot of people. They get a shock. Hey, I've got this degree. Now you're asking for seven years of experience. And in the past, businesses used to hire for knowledge and skill. And then they would fire for attitude, which is emotional intelligence. And today, hmm. the business world has been flipped upside down. And people are saying, why don't we go and look for emotionally intelligent people and hire for attitude and then teach them knowledge and skill. So the business world says, we want people with emotional intelligence. Can people have both? I believe people can have both, and both have to be learned, but it does take time. Oh, I really like that. You know, I think about for myself and my own career, how that, uh, that, that shift in hiring for behaviors, hiring for attitude, and being willing to teach skill that you're hitting the nail on the head there. That is absolutely the mindset of, I would say, probably the majority of employers because it's so costly to lose someone over something that you feel you can control. Like, you know, you can control having hiring someone who has a can-do spirit. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, it, I would say in most cases, teaching whatever the job requires is possible. The interesting thing that businesses are going through today is that they're a bit understaffed, and so you have potentially a lot of people with high emotional intelligence, but not a whole lot of skill because the people who would typically train them and teach them and who they would learn from might not actually have the bandwidth to do all of the things that the company had initially planned for them to be able to do. And I've seen that. I think this is the, probably the first time I'm reconciling that thought. <laughs> I'm like working through it right now. Um, but I've seen that in really my last few roles where there's this so much pressure to train someone and then, you know, you're, you're telling them that you will because they don't necessarily have that, that amount of experience that the role typically would call for, but then you don't actually put in the work to train them because you don't have the bandwidth and then they become frustrated anyway and then they decide to leave. And it's, it, it's an, a different type of cycle than someone with a, higher IQ potentially, or someone with that experience, and maybe the EQ is not as high. Um, and then they they end up turning for different reasons, but it kind of can tend to result in the same outcome. So there's potentially a need to find out how to solve that problem of committing to the things that we say we're going to do and actually putting in, establishing a foundation for training to give those people who have potentially that higher EQ the skills that they need to be more well-rounded uh, in their experience. You, know, you mentioned optimism here a moment ago. Now, um, I like that you're welcome to ideas that are conflicting. If I'm building a team and I need an accountant, I don't want an optimistic accountant. <laughs> right. I want a pessimistic accountant. If I'm hiring a lawyer, I don't want an optimistic lawyer. I want a pessimistic lawyer. If I'm hiring an engineer, I don't want an optimistic engineer. I want a pessimistic engineer. And people yeah. say, oh, but optimism is a, is a sign of emotional intelligence. 
I said, yes, it's also emotional stupidity of some people thinking that high emotional intelligence and certain behavioral traits are always important. In a salesperson, I want somebody who's optimistic. As somebody who's going to answer the telephone for my company, I want somebody who's optimistic. For somebody out there who is the cheerleader of my business, I want somebody optimistic in that role. So we've got to look at what's important in the key role. And sometimes people with a lower level of emotional intelligence are actually much more effective in their roles than people who have too much emotional intelligence. And when we say too much, my belief is that 95%, and this is well documented in uh, places like Forbes magazine, 95% of the population claim to be emotional intelligent. That's the first problem. (laughs) The reality is 10 to 15% actually are. So we've got some gaps that we've got to fill. And high is not always good and low is not always bad. I love that. And this is exactly why you are here to talk about this topic today. This misconception, which I am guilty of, for sure, first to admit, in believing that high EQ equals more success, more achievement, better talent. Um, And... I'm guilty of this, I think, because of the shift that we've made in business, for sure, in hiring behavior over skill set. But I also think that those with higher EQ are probably a little bit easier to interact with in in certain arenas, especially for someone who potentially has higher EQ. I say potentially because I've never taken a test to prove whether I am claiming it or if I actually am. So potentially (laughs) high EQ. And so for me, it's like, oh yeah, it's fun to be around like-minded people. But you know, for me, I'm, I'm presuming and assuming that I have an IQ. And so it's nice to be around like-minded people, but to this point, and I, I actually just had a conversation with someone about how building a team requires diversity in thought, as well as diversity in so many other things. Um, and that diversity in thought is actually exactly what you're saying here, that High EQ isn't necessarily good and low EQ isn't necessarily bad. It's about figuring out the right level of EQ for the role and what it requires. So let's talk about this a little bit, the misconception about EQ and and high achievement. Where did you kind of first realize this and how does that play a role in your day-to-day today? Well, for me, when I was being trained as a leader, I was working with Emirates Airline. And they're one of the world's leading five-star airlines, very ambitious, and they want to develop their people. So I went through a very intense level of training. I acquired the knowledge as a leader, I acquired the skill, and they also coached me to develop my unique personality. Now, when I got on the aircraft and I started to lead my team, I quickly realized that not everybody needed the same leadership style. So I had 17,500 people in my team. Every flight, I would co-lead 17 crew. I would have to help the aircraft arrive safely, you know, thousands of miles away with 400 customers. And I realized that 400 customers needed something different from me as their onboard leader. And I had this uh, interesting flight. I was in business class and I had a crew of four and I think I had 48 customers and I brought the crew into the galley. And we did a pre-flight briefing. And I said to the girls on the left of the aircraft, they were two Aussie girls. I said, girls, we've all been to the same training college. We're going to follow service routine one. And if you follow the service sequence from top to bottom, then we'll deliver the perfect service. Do you know what to do? 
And they said, absolutely, boss. We'll follow the service sequence routine one from top to bottom. And I said, good, go out and do it. If you need support, let me know. Now, I looked to my girls on the right-hand side and I said the same thing. This is what we can do. Service routine one, follow it from top to bottom. If you do that, we'll have a perfect service. If you need me for anything, let me know because I believe in autonomy. So the girls went out there, the girls on the left-hand side of the aircraft, the Aussie girls, they went out and they followed the surface sequence and the customers were smiling, they were happy and there was no complaints. Where the girls on the right-hand side, they were from Far East Asia. And after a couple of minutes, I pulled them back in the galley and I said, why are you serving desserts before the appetizers? And they're like, well, you said to follow the surface sequence from top to bottom. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, at the top are the uh, appetizers and down the bottom's the dessert. <laughs> Let's start again. I said, there's the service sequence, go out, follow it from top to bottom. They went back out, the call bells are ringing and the customer's saying, where are our main meals? Where are our drinks? And they've blown the surface, the service. And I started to think to myself, are these people just not listening to me or something? And I thought to myself, I better accept responsibility as a leader. And I thought, what do I need to do differently? See, the girls on the left-hand side of the aircraft, we were from the same culture, from the same region of the world. So I gave them an instruction that they understood. But then when I looked at my girls from Far East Asia, I realized that, oh my gosh, they come from a different culture. They need to be told what to do at every step of the way. They don't want to think for themselves in this situation. They want to be told what to do. So I quickly assumed responsibility before I blamed them for incompetence. I thought to myself, if a leader has incompetent team members, it's the leader who's incompetent. I remember mm. that from training college. So I said to the girls, let's do this. I want you to go out and do steps one, two, and three in that exact order. And as soon as you've done it, come back and report to me and tell me what you've done. They went out. Bang, 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 one, two, three, did it perfectly. I said, good, now go do four, five, six. And they went out, bang, 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 four, five, six. And I said, good, go do seven, eight, nine, bang, bang, bang. No customer complaints. All the customers are happy. The job gets done. So the point of that was it was my emotional intelligence. And you mentioned it before, building teams with alternate thinking. The role of empathy for the leader is to understand the political differences of the people in the regions of the world that they come from. And I was lacking in that in my early days as a leader. So I quickly learned. And then I had to have flexibility, which is another emotional intelligence skill of a leader, is to adapt, adjust, and respond to the environment. I love that story. I think, first of all, to have that many team members is incredible. And I I don't know how many people can say that they have, have had 17,000 uh, employees, you know, were basically reporting in their reporting structure. So that presents one initial challenge. But what I like that you mentioned are the regional differences. I think as we continue to operate in this hybrid and remote first world, we're going to come in contact with many more people from across the world. I already think about in my own job today, I'm interacting with people who are based in India and based in Europe. And those regional differences do play a huge role on how we present to work. And in my experience, I've worked for French companies and Italian companies and American companies. And it's very true that actually there is also on the opposite side for me as an American, a presumption from the company for, you know, depending on the region that they uh, originated, a presumption on a North American team. 
And that has always been a conflict on the receiving end that, oh, well, we do things differently here in North America. We do things differently in the United States. And, you know, it's absolutely true that the shoe can be on the other foot that, well, it's different in Far East Asia. It's different in Australia, actually, as well from compared to the United States. And and it's certainly different even between the U.S. and Canada. If we can all take a, a moment to step back and think, is any part of this my responsibility? And it probably is, to your point. Teams that maybe lack in competence are potentially a reflection of their leader because there are so, I mean, there's so many things that we can get into there. But if you take a step back and you do some self-reflection, there probably are some adjustments that you can make on the individual level before, yeah, you go and roast your team in front of, you know, the rest of the team. The other thing we, we, we should be aware of just these cultural differences, and it comes to the emotional intelligence piece, is when you go to the Middle East, is you'll be in a nego- negotiation. And you might be there as an individual, but if you're dealing with the Saudis or the Bedouins from Dubai, they might bring three or four people to the negotiation. And there'll be somebody there asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of talking. And the first thing you've got to realize is that's not the most important person in the room. When you're dealing with Arabs, the most powerful person is the person who sits in the corner and says nothing. I love (laughs) that. So you've got to know that, albeit the talker, the mouthpiece is talking, don't address them. Address the person who's sitting silently in the corner. That's the powerful one. And again, that's political awareness. You've got to understand this when we're doing business across borders. Oh, I like that. And actually, it goes to I, this is, is almost like hyperbole for EQ that the person, and, and actually, probably just like relationships in the workplace too, the person who is the loudest is not necessarily the one that's going to influence your experience the most or that's going to be the most successful because this is definitely something that has come up a lot in recent times. Um, I think just from like the extroverted and introverted uh, dichotomy and, and those types of conversations that are happening, I see it especially on LinkedIn where it's like, you don't have to be the loudest in the room. Let other people have you know, their, their time in the sun. And this, I think that kind of points to this notion that just because there's someone who is taking up all of the airtime doesn't mean that they're actually, yeah, the ones that are in the power seat necessarily. That's Sometimes people with low levels of emotional intelligence can't regulate their behaviors. And so what I call it, it's verbal diarrhea. They just talk, 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 talk. And the you know what, it, the stuff yeah. that hits the fan, it just comes out of the mouth. And that's an example of somebody who can't regulate their emotions. Where somebody who might be perceived as an introvert may be excellent at regulating their emotions. They might just say, at this time, I have no statements to make. I might just be collecting information. And they don't feel compelled to talk. Sometimes they just observe. And that's that street smart thing. They're just observing. They're reading the play. They know when not to talk, and when the time's right, then they do talk. doesn't mean they're introverted. And also, there is no correlation between introvert and being unsuccessful and being an extrovert and being successful. It's a preference. Right. Absolutely. And this, uh, this also makes me think about how there's this conversation now about, in general, when it comes to uh, the the idea of, you know, really not um, speaking or not sharing and like appreciating the silence, 
that that is a huge, I mean, that, that's actually a skill in my opinion, because you have to, it's to your point, it is regulating emotion, but it's also really hard, whether you're extroverted or not, to not say anything sometimes. So when you're in a, a some sort of conversation in the workplace, whether it's it's lighthearted or not, to just stay silent and listen, that freaks people out. But actually, it's really important to have those moments of silence, whether it's to regain control of a conversation, gather your thoughts before you, to your point, have verbal diarrhea. You know, there's so many, that's something like when I think about a skill set that I've acquired over the years, it's that knowing how mm -hmm. to just sit there and listen and allow, especially in difficult conversations, because it puts the other person, especially if there's a, a reaction and being defensive, when you're just silent, there's nothing to, you can't work off of it. You can't be defensive to anything. You're just listening. I'd, I'd like to put around a, a foundation or, or a formula around emotional intelligence, and we can start to categorize this very simply. There's five principles of emotional intelligence. The first one is self-awareness, and that's understanding why you think and feel the way that you do. It's knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. Now, people in this area who have more of an accurate self-assessment are actually more confident. So confidence comes from being self-aware. The second pillar of emotional intelligence is self-regulation. And this is the ability to control your mental and emotional responses. See, most people have an emotional hijack and they speak before thinking. And they bypass rational thought and act. And all action that precedes thinking leads to failure. So when you see somebody who can't hold their tongue, this is an example of being less active in this area. The third pillar of emotional intelligence is motivation. Now, this is not the Tony Robbins jump up and down. It's not the millionaire mind. High five, you've got a millionaire mind. <laughs> it's not that type of motivation. It's more of that resiliency. It's the person who's able to roll with the punches to fall down and get back up and go again. The final two are more to do with other people. And so the fourth pillar of emotional intelligence is social awareness. And this is the ability to read other people's emotional makeup, to read other people's strengths and weaknesses without necessarily asking. So it's empathy. And then the fifth pillar is social regulation. And this is the ability to influence and persuade. And communication, which you're talking about here, silence is a form of communication. And successful leaders know that if you just zip your lips for a few moments, people will get that verbal diarrhea, they'll let the cat out of the bag, and they'll tell you everything that you need to know. However, to make that happen, you've got to go back to self-regulation, and you've got to be able to control your thought and feeling impulses to create that space for people to talk. And so it all links in with one another. Yeah, I that's, I mean, mic drop, right? There's nothing more to say. That's exact. It makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, we're done. All right, see ya. Um, and one of, the, one of the, the pillars that you've mentioned really draws out resilience as a skill set, as a, a pillar, you know, part of the pillars for the what measures emotional intelligence or what enables someone to have some level of emotional intelligence. And I think resilience is probably the most important skill set 
when it comes to businesses and what they require in order to be able to pivot and adapt, especially we've seen this to be so true on like a global front, as we know from COVID. Um, just, you know, th- those who have been able to be resilient, whether it's an individual or a business, are the ones that are still operating today. So I would love if you drilled down a little bit on that and as as far as like the importance of resilience goes and how someone who maybe is not as resilient and feels super stressed or almost like dragging their feet in the mud when they have to be resilient, you know, someone who maybe doesn't really appreciate change as much, how do they develop that skill set to be more resilient? I want you to think of these pillars of emotional intelligence like a waterfall and it cascades down from self-awareness down to self-regulation down to motivation down to social awareness and down to social regulation so the first pillar is self-awareness and we have to understand our strengths and our weaknesses we also have to understand which emotions we're experiencing at any given time and so what i say to my clients is if you can't name it you can't tame it And this comes down to understanding your personality style. Some of us are more impacted by anger. Now, a lot of people say, well, I'm not an angry person. No, you're not an angry person. Anger is an emotion. It's not a personality trait. It's an emotion. Some people like me, I'm explosive with anger. I'll just snap. However, I'll let the anger out. And as fast as I snap, like I'll go off like a firecracker. Boom! And it'll disappear where I've got other friends who are very slow to anger and they could still be upset about something that happened 10 or 15 years ago. If I kissed their girlfriend 25 years ago, they're probably still angry at me and they haven't told me yet. And I'll say, well, I'm not angry. Yeah, but you've been bottling up for 25 years. Come on, move on. (laughs) So if we can't name it, we can't tame it. So then once we name it, we then have to be able to regulate it. Now, talking about anger and emotional intelligence, a lot of people say, you can't be angry. Well, screw you. You can be angry and you're allowed to be angry. I'm a former Australian champion athlete. I'm competitive. I'm a three-time state champion athlete. I've competed at the I've competed at the X Games. I hate to lose. So when I get angry, what do I want to do? I want to go back and I want to train harder. I'm going to try different things. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to stay up later. I don't like to lose. I want to win. The only difference is I know how to use that anger to push me towards my goals. Where other people don't know what to do with the anger, so they they sit on it. Ah, well, I didn't get a pay rise, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sabotage the success of the boss. Well, that doesn't help anybody. you got to know how to regulate the anger. So if you've got somebody who's aggressive in the workplace and anger, it just means they probably don't know how to use that towards results. Now, coming back to resiliency, which is the part of the third pillar of uh, emotional intelligence is motivation. I set a goal at age 16 to be an Australian champion athlete. It only took me nine years to get it. <laughs> and I, was, I got angrier and I got angrier and I got angrier till the final year I was just fed up. And I said, if this is not the year, screw it. And so I went and trained two and three times harder. And I eventually become the Australian champion. And so I also used that anger to help me move forward. I fell down. I had multiple knee reconstructions. I had six guys attempt to kill me one night. I got back up and I kept moving forward because I had this anger in me. It's that aggression. I've got to win. I hate to lose. 
Now, I didn't hurt anybody along the way. Anger doesn't mean you're going to hurt anybody. Most people get frustrated and they say, I'm sick of playing small. I want to go big. And that helps you with your resiliency, but it's using it for yourself, not against yourself. Wow. First of all, that's so cool that you are an, a, a champion athlete. I mean, I think, first of all, you're right that leveraging your emotions to propel you forward is absolutely what probably underpins resilience for you. And I can imagine, I mean, I've, I am the same way and I also am an explosive angry person. So I get over things really fast, but I like, you know, really, I, I go, I go through it really fast. I feel it really fast. Mm. And then I'm like, all right, so what's for dinner? But when I think about your story with your career in competitive sports, you know, that it's, it's really an analogy for you know, for a listener who maybe is not an athlete or has not been an athlete, it's an analogy for how you can overcome defeat in the workplace. And it's precisely that because that was your workplace when you were competitive in your sport. And so, you know, for the listeners who are trying to understand how they can, you know, adapt to change better and be more resilient themselves, I think it, it does come down to, well, how are you reacting when something doesn't go your way? How are you you know, walking away from a situation that maybe you perceive to be failure. I mean, we life is not without adversity. And this is something that I, I really want to dig into just in general on my podcast, because I think with the shift in society and being much more homogeneous in the sense that we all have to have high EQ, we all have to want the same things for ourselves. We all have to go to college. We all have to have a trade. We all have to do this or that. And it's like, you know, it's almost, I don't know if it's social media that has created this hyper visibility of what every single other person is doing in the world, but we don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to speak about a certain topic, care about a certain topic, know about a certain topic. Certainly we should know our histories, but you know, it's, it's such a, um, a growing pain to me. I, I think that's what it is that, you know, as a society, we've, you know, zoomed forward into having all of this knowledge about one another. And now we don't necessarily know what to do. Do we, do we stand up for this? Do we not stand up for that? Do we, you know, promote this? Do we not promote that? Do I go to college? Do I not? And so this, this approach in being so similar, everyone having a high EQ, for example, as we're talking about today, can really prevent us from adapting to change. And I say that because I think when we, when we have these moments of adversity or things that, you know, potentially are failures, we think that every, you know, there, there's no room for that. There's no room for adversity. Why, why is the boss telling me that I'm not doing the right thing? They're not doing the right thing. But all this does is like spew a lack of self-awareness and a lack of accountability. When life is meant to have adversity, there is, there's never been in the history of the world, as far as I'm aware, has there ever been a, a moment in time where someone didn't have an adverse reaction or an adverse experience or failure? And the, the quicker we realize that adversity is part of life, I think the, the faster we'll be able to deal with those moments of challenge and be resilient to them. And this is something I've been very, I've been like, like silently sitting on this idea and I'm just getting it out. So it's a little rough around the edges, but 
people, I really think anyone listening to this, it is okay that you and your boss don't get along sometimes. It is okay that you, you're not always happy at work. Adversity is part of life. I remember one of your American presidents said, we're going to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> now that's optimism. And somebody who's going to the moon and super optimistic and overly optimistic, they can become drunk on optimism. And so what they fail to do is they fail to think about the consequences. But then you get these other people in life who are more pessimistic. But see, a pessimistic person tends to get punished in the workplace. Oh, come on. Can't you be more optimistic? No. <laughs> Don't ask me to be more optimistic. I want to be pessimistic. Because if I'm pessimistic about your ability to go to the moon, I'm going to start to ask questions about your mission. I'm going to ask questions that you haven't considered. I'm going to play the role of the devil's advocate, and I'm going to get you to think of all the negative consequences and the chain of events that could happen if you're trying to put a rocket into outer space. And I'm going to save lives. Now, is that valuable? Highly. So valuable. So we've got to have the yin and the yang. <laughs> I know a lot of people say, you know, when it's freezing cold outside and it's snowing, oh, gee, I can't wait for summer. But what happens in the middle of summer? Oh, gee, it's hot outside. I can't wait for winter. <laughs> you so have one without the other. You've got, you've got to have both. I, I'm the eternal optimist. And when I set my goal to become an Australian champion athlete, I just assumed I was going to do it overnight. Why? Because I'm setting a goal. I'm Daniel. I can fly to the moon. <laughs> it took me nine years. Now, my over-optimism set me up for failure for nine years. But my optimism helped me continue and pursue that goal for nine years. So the question is, was my emotional intelligence high or low? Well, it's debatable. Because you might say, well, his optimism was high because he set a big goal. But you could also say his optimism, his, um, his optimism, his emotional intelligence could be low because he was overly optimistic and he might have set himself up for failure. Maybe if he had a little bit more emotional intelligence, he might have put different time frames on it. So there's this yin and yang at play and a high level of emotional intelligence. Some people can get drunk with optimism. And this is the leader who sets goals too big too soon. And they set their team up for failure. So is that a skill that you want to reward in the workplace? Sometimes it's nicer to have that leader who's more doubtful, more pessimistic and say, you know what, this is not possible under these circumstances. Why don't we set the goal smaller and then we can do something that we're absolutely guaranteed of and build our confidence up along the way. Shouldn't we reward that as well? Wow, I love that. You know, I think this this all comes down to the the way in which we surround ourselves with these you know thought partners and mentors and you know whether you're an individual contributor or on a you know have a team beneath you i think there is a way to make sure that you have someone who is balancing you out i am also an eternal optimist so if i i married a realist as he as he proclaims. I'm like, no, you're a pessimist. But he's like, no, I'm a realist. So I prefer actually engaging in conversation with my husband about things that for me feel, you know, like I'm always like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, you know, start this. And he's like, well, you know, what about X, Y, Z, one, two, three. I'm like, oh. I didn't think of that. 
and I don't want to think about that and just <laughs> let me have my moment. But actually there's so, to your point, there's so much value in that. And I think, I think that for all of the listeners, they're probably at the stage in this conversation in their mind saying, oh, yeah, that's me. Or no, I'm the person that plays more of the devil's advocate because I don't, I, I, I'm not quick to just say, okay, let's do it or let's have this lofty goal. I think through things a little bit more or I, you know, am a little bit more challenging when it comes to, you know, kind of just flying by the seat of our pants as a team. And there is so much value in that. And, and it's not always easy for people like us and other people who are also eternal optimists to be around those who challenge our ideas and challenge our goals and dreams. But it, they actually, we become stronger because of it and our goals and dreams become probably more attainable because we have someone helping us think through the various challenges that are associated with having a lofty goal and having a goal, period. And so I think what I would love to hear from you on uh, when we think about someone, you know, when we think about two people interacting in something, we, uh, we deal with a lot of empathy sometimes. We deal with, you know, the, the challenges of wanting to understand the plight of someone or, you know, the challenges that they're experiencing. And we definitely, as leaders, are told that we need to be more empathetic. We need to have more empathy for our, our teams, for our peers. But I know from speaking with you that there are some challenges to having too much empathy, not to having empathy, but to having too much. So walk us through that. What are some of the challenges and how do we, how, how do we navigate that? I'm glad you asked that question. And I was having the perfect conversation just Monday this week. One of my clients rang up and he talked to me about four team members who were underperforming. And so he talked to me about it and I just asked the question, have you spoken to your team about this? And he said, why would I talk to the team? I said, because it's about them. He said, but I don't want to offend them. He said, I don't want to bring up this topic in case I offend them. You know, we're going through this great resignation and maybe if I bring this up to them, they don't like it, they might leave me. And so we're having this conversation. Now, is this an example of low empathy or is it an example of being an empath? Well, I know this person and what they've done over the years is they've really developed their empathy. And what's happening now is they've become an empath. So in my research and in my studies and in my case studies that I've done, once we start to see emotional intelligence that starts to get up above 90 and 95 and creeping up to 100 in the area of empathy, people are no long, longer uh, empathetic. They become an empath. And so this leader is going, I know what it feels like to be them. And I wouldn't want to be addressed right now. If I was in their situation and I was addressed, then I might leave the company. So this high emotional intelligence is now working against him. So what would be better in this particular situation is to bring that emotional intelligence level down below the average and just be direct with people. See, what I've learned with business is every underperformer knows they're underperforming. Everybody knows. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you've just got to shoot them straight between the eyes and say, hey, you are not going to like what I'm going to say. But I think you already know the conversation that we're about to have. And you just hit them right between the eyes. 
And so sometimes you've got to bring that empathy level down and just be honest and straight with people and not get caught up with your own emotions. You've got to be able to push your emotions to the side. So what was he going through? Well, he thought the first emotion for him, it was, you know, what if somebody takes advantage of this situation? What if I address them and then they take advantage of me and say, well, that's the reason I'm out of here. I'm leaving you. See, he couldn't regulate that emotion. So we've got two things happening here. Self-empathy and his ability to regulate his own emotions, he lost that in this situation. The other one was the fear of rejection. What if I do address them and they say, no, this is not the truth, and I Mm. get rejected, and I'm the leader? How do I deal with that? Well, it comes back to his inability to regulate the emotions. So high can get you into trouble. Now, the same thing is true for salespeople, and this happened to me. I love people. I want to help people. I'm a people helper. If your heart's bleeding, my heart's bleeding. And if you don't have a shirt, I'll probably not necessarily give you my shirt, but I'll take mine off so we both have no shirts together. (laughs) And that's what I'm going to do. And at the start of my coaching career, I would help anybody. And I'd give them coaching, I'd give them counselling, and I'd hear their problems, and I'd cry me a river like Justin Timberlake, and I'd go, oh, I can't sell to this person. I've been in this situation. I've been unemployed. I've had no money. And then I say, I'm so sorry. I can't help you. And you know what they're doing? The next day, they're purchasing a training from my competitor who's got the worst ethics and values in town. And then mm-hmm. I realise I just did somebody a disservice because of my over active empathy gland (laughs) empathy gland i love that and then i then i'd look at my competitor who's got no empathy but he's making millions of dollars and i think to myself how does that work he's getting Mm -hmm. rewarded see what he was doing was he was like hey if you're on the phone with me obviously you want to fix this problem i don't care about your justin timberlake cry me a river story my job is to sell programs you've got a problem sign you up So in sales, if the empathy is too high, we listen and buy into all the objections and we don't do what we're supposed to do, which is to help the person. But sometimes a lower or less active empathy, 70, 75, can be better because they say, okay, yep, I've heard all these objections before. You wouldn't be on the phone with me if you didn't want to solve this problem. I'm going to sign you up. Job done. I love it. Two examples. You know, there's a lot to think about here. I'm sure that the listeners are going to want to measure their empathy and potentially use this too to figure out, well, you know, if I need to make a career move or I need to shift the way that, you know, I operate or what I'm actually doing, how do I figure that out? And I've had a lot of conversations with many colleagues over the years, um, but more recently than, than probably ever before, where, you know, these friends of mine, former coworkers are saying, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. And I, I had a very similar experience actually this year when I was like, I don't know that I want to do, you know, this type of HR. I think I want to specialize. And those, um, those moments of realization where, you know, maybe you were able to like really get on top of the job and do the job that's required of you, but it's taken a lot out of you. And maybe, maybe it's just a matter of it's, you know, it calling on too many things or requiring too many things from the individual. Maybe it's requiring too little empathy. Maybe it's requiring too much empathy and it can be emotionally draining. And I would probably go as far as to say that anything that is people facing could probably be emotionally draining, whether you're built for it or not, as long as you do it for long enough. Like I think about psychiatrists there, I mean, they probably have lower empathy 
in some ways because they have to be able to sustain themselves for mm -hmm. a 30 or 40 year career. So if you agree with that, it seems like you, you might because you're nodding your head, but how do, um, how, how do people figure out whether they can sustain what their career is requiring from them? And how, if, it, if it's not the right thing for them, how do they figure out the level of empathy that they have or what they need to do to, you know, maybe pivot a little bit? It's just like um, weight loss. You got to jump on the scales first. Yeah. <laughs> you got to weigh your levels of emotional intelligence. And there's many different ways that we do it. Uh, my wife and I in our business, we use a series, series of assessments, but we also use artificial intelligence today. One of the most accurate ways to measure your emotional intelligence today is to do a 360 review on your emotional intelligence. So I had a very high-performing salesperson come to me and say, I just can't make the money that I want to make. And I looked at him, and my first assessment was he would have a low level of emotional intelligence, just my first assessment, because I've seen thousands of people in this position before. However, I don't want to tell him he's got to decide and learn this for himself. So I said to him, how many in your team? He said, I've got 30 people in my team. And I said, well, what we should do is we should do a 360 degree review of your level of emotional intelligence. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of 10 people's names in your organization, five people who like you and five people who hate you <laughs> <laughs> to review your emotional intelligence. And he's like, oh, but what if the bad ones say that it's not all that good? And I said, that's what you want. Yeah. You want the reality. And I said, then I want you to get five of your customers to review your levels of emotional intelligence. Now, we had, I think, uh, a total of 15 people plus him, 16 people, complete an assessment to review his emotional intelligence, 360 degrees. And there's no names in the report, so it's all private and confidential. Now, when the levels of emotional intelligence came back, his average emotional intelligence based on his personal rating was around about 67%. In comparison to the composite of all the other people, their emotional intelligence score came in at about 78%. Wow. So he could not see himself how others saw him. He looked down upon himself and he was more critical on himself, overly critical on himself. And then he realized, he said, Daniel, he goes, this is so true. Everybody gives me feedback and say, I should be making 250000 a year. You've got what it takes to succeed. You should be one of the number one salespeople. He says, but all the self-talk in here is 180 degrees opposite to that. And all he had to do was have that confirmation that people perceived him as being more emotionally intelligent for him to believe in himself. And within, I would say, about 12 to 18 months, he was one of the top performers in the entire business. Wow. And it was that awareness piece. He started to have a look at what were his strengths. Yes, he did work on his limitations, but he played to the strengths. And what we say in emotional intelligence is what you focus on grows. So if you have some key strengths in emotional intelligence, you've got to play to those strengths. And if you focus on the strengths, they become bigger. Don't worry so much about your limitations because if you focus on that, that grows and becomes bigger. You just position yourself where you need to be. So what could be an example of that? Well, if you have high levels of empathy, 
then what you should be doing is you should be getting yourself into a position where you can work closely and intimately with others. Now, if you've got high empathy, it doesn't mean you're better than somebody else who has low empathy. If you have low levels of empathy, and I have a client, he's a doctor, he works in the emergency room, and he's got low levels of empathy. He's just like, <laughs> whatever, send them in. I don't care who they are, what they've done, I'll fix them. <laughs> And for him, it's just less active and he doesn't get caught up in all the pain of it. He doesn't right. get caught up in all the drama. And he's just like, yeah, send him into the emergency room. Let's get him done. Doesn't take anything mm. personally. When the uh, client, when the patient's yelling and screaming at him, he doesn't take it personally. <laughs> just like, yeah, whatever. All good. For me as a coach, my empathy is high and it serves me really well because I really care about people. But I've got friends who are builders and they don't care so much about relationships. They just love to build. And if they're building and they're concreting or they're putting a scaffolding up, then they don't have to deal with people. And it's perfect for them. It doesn't mean that they can't run a team. They might be short and blunt and to the point, but that's what their team need from them. You know, one of my leaders works with a lot of people who have a lower level of education. Now, it doesn't mean they're not smart or not valued. They have a lower level of education and they're laborers. They don't need an inspirational boss. They don't need a cheerleader. What do they want? They just want somebody to tell them what to do. They don't go to work every day for a relationship. They don't necessarily go just to have a feel-good environment. They want to go. They want to get paid. They want to go home. They want to forget about work. At seven o'clock in the morning, they want to check in. They want to do their mm. thing. They don't care about relationships. And they love it. They're not unhappy people. They're not unsuccessful people. They're just doing it differently. And so you've got to play to your strength. I love that. I don't think there's any better way to say thank you for coming on the podcast than ending it there. I mean, you've given me and I'm sure all of the listeners a lot to think about. And like I said in the beginning, I mean, having you on to really uh, almost counter what I've talked about on this podcast, what other guests have also talked about on this podcast, I think is helpful. It doesn't mean that that perspective is wrong. I think it just gives us a different perspective to think about and evaluate. Um, and I think some of these key points that we talked about that high EQ is not necessarily good and low EQ is not necessarily bad. Uh, being in a terminal optimist isn't necessarily good and being a pessimist isn't necessarily bad. And then, you know, being extroverted isn't necessarily good and being introverted isn't, isn't necessarily bad. And being okay with accepting that we are all going to be different compared to others. And that is okay. And that is part of this, you know, adversity comes with life speech and monologue that I had before, which is that we, it is, it is absolutely okay for us to all be a little bit different or completely different. And that there is so much value in having those differences, just like there's value in having you on the podcast to really challenge the way that we have thought about EQ up until today. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your stories and, and your words of wisdom with us. Always a pleasure. And thank you for listening. And there's a, what, what did my mum say? There's a, there's a, there's a thousand different ways you can skin a cat. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> don't even want to know cats, one of the them. Way. Don't do yeah. that. I love cats. <laughs> yeah. I don't even want to know the one way. Um, but you know, we will thank, thanks mom. We'll go with the analogy. Um, tell us Daniel, then where, where the listeners can find you and connect with you. Come and connect. I have a website, danieltolson.com. 
and from my website, danieltolson.com. And you can find me on Facebook. We've got a beautiful group there called Accelerate and Multiply. And there's a ton of free resources. I uh, wrote a book the other day. I'm just about to finish publishing it off. And it should be on my website in the next couple of days. And it's about leadership in times of rapid change. It's a free book. I'm going to share eight key ideas, including emotional intelligence, on how you can navigate through these uncertain times. Amazing. And I will share all of those links, as always, in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll chat soon. Let's do it.